are listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the podcast today. I am super excited to get to have uh, Brad Jerzak here today to talk about his understanding of um, ultimate redemption. And uh, I'm just really impressed with your Uh, with the clarity and the thoughtfulness that you've put into this term. Well, I wanted people to know more about it. So thanks for coming back on and and talking with us about it. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Good to see you again, David. So ultimate redemption, what what was it about this term that that captured your thinking or that made you think, that's how I want to be understood? That's a great question. So first of all, um, what, what we started with was trying to find a way to specify what's going on in the early church with those fathers who did believe that all would be saved, but only that all would be saved through a redeemer named Jesus Christ. So in other words, we're trying to preserve elements of the gospel that many universalists have set aside. And as I've shared before, I can list them now, the five elements of the gospel that I'm convinced of include the problem of sin, which means we need a redeemer. Mm-hmm. Second, uh, the glorious fact of the redeemer, Jesus Christ. So he's the redeemer. Um, he came, his incarnation is all about coming as God's redeemer to us. Third, that the means of that redemption includes the way that the cross reveals God as love, but also is a decisive victory over Satan, sin, and death. So we needed the Redeemer to do something. The means by which he did that was his death and resurrection. So that is part of our gospel. Uh, Fourth, uh, just in order to be faithful to Scripture, we wanted to take care to not negate all those Scriptures that talk about judgment, final judgment and accounting for ourselves at the end but Mm -hmm. that in light of our redeemer whose redemption extends to all then i i now see those judgments as restorative rather than retributive and i see them as penultimate which means second last instead of ultimate in other words that's where we get the ultimate redemption comes after penultimate judgment and then finally uh, we wanted to preserve the summons to a response uh, a faith response to the Redeemer is necessary to step into um, the experience of our redemption. But the New Testament foresees that being the case for all because uh, death is no longer uh, definitive. Christ is definitive in this. So I do see I do see many scriptures in the New Testament that seem to anticipate, the redemption of all. So we've got redemption implying mm-hmm. so many things there and that that is the final word. That's the ultimate word. It is the telos towards which all of creation will find itself in Christ freely and voluntarily um, as as they see him as he really is and rejoice in what they see. So telos 
uh, T-E-L-O-S in English, is that's the Greek for the word that means end, the ultimate it, end. Yeah, and end not just temporal, as in the last thing, but it includes that, but end as in God's intended end. Uh, it is He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. Well, will God's ends match his desires? I believe so, because his love is infinite <laughs> and his mercy endures forever. And so even if there are things in me that resist redemption, um, his love will persuade me otherwise and free me from the hindrances from seeing the goodness that I've been made to want. Um, and when I see what I want, I will, I will receive what I want. So in other words, uh, part of your creation is that you, you have a spiritual orientation. Yeah. I would even say, I, I wouldn't say spiritual as over against material or something like that, but the whole yeah. of who we are was designed to desire the good. And if God is the ultimate good, then I am designed to desire God. And his, especially if we think about God as love, I'm designed, I'm created to want what I think is best for me. When I don't see what's best for me, I may resist perfect love. But okay, that's so that really because has, a blinder has been put over our eyes, right? Right. So that, that sort of gets to the problem of free will is that uh, it, it will not be a denial of our free will to come home to that union for which we were created. When we finally become uh, clear and we see ourselves for who we are and we see God for who God is, then it won't be a denial of our free will, but really a fulfillment in order to take, exactly the, right. to take the step to come home. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so what people think now, and this is why I, I resist a certain kind of Calvinist universalism that seems not to believe in a free will response, but is more deterministic. God will get what God wants and God has elected to do so. And free will really has nothing to do with it. Well, that's not how I see it. Um, how I would see it is in this life, we are free agents who can make choices. But is it fair to call what we experience now as free will if it's been bound up by lies and inhibitions and the chains of bondage to sin? And in fact, uh, the way Christ describes it in the Gospel of John, he says, like anybody who, who um, sins is a slave to sin. So already there's a, an enslavement of my will in this present evil age. But then Jesus says, but, if, but if, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Well, when will he do that? Well, for some of us, he, you know, there's a great sense of freedom when he shows us the truth of our salvation in him. Um, but also we know that, some, that this is a lifetime of being freed from our bondage mm -hmm. to sin. So there's what, no there's no other direction that a free will would ultimately go than back home. That's right. And it may be that we not we may not have a freed F R E E D a freed will until we meet him. And when we meet him with a freed will we'll do exactly what we are created to do, and that is desire the good. I would even say in this light, every wrong thing we do is still an attempt 
to fulfill what we think is good, even if we're deluded. I mean, Hitler himself was acting on what he thought was the good. <laughs> it's just like, whoa, what an incredible insanity that was. Right. It's but just he was such doing a deluded he, pursuit. Yeah. And so we all suffer this kind of enslavement to a deluded pursuit of the good. Um, one of my friends even said, you know, no, I can't say it on the air. <laughs> you could just think of one of the most horrendous uh, acts that a person can commit. And somehow he thinks he's doing this for his good. It takes tremendous lying towards herself, but we're capable of that. Well, when that's out of the way, Maximus the Confessor said, we will be restored to our natural will, and our natural will always longs for the good. Well, let's talk a little bit about where you see some evidence for this in the scriptures, because I know that, you know, sometimes people look at the scriptures and they see a certain set of passages which sort of instantly believes that leads them to believe that there will be a final separation and there will be uh, souls that will be lost forever. So how, how do you just see some of this in the scriptures? Yeah, well, one one set of scriptures that I think we overlook a lot is those scriptures that say the word world. And so, you know, or um, what would be an example? Uh, John 1 verse 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, did he or didn't he? If sin is the problem, Jesus has taken away the problem. And so we might massage that ourselves to say, well, you know, he's, he's, he offers to take away the sins of the world. He, that's not what it says. What does mm -hmm. it say? He takes it away. And when he takes away, the, it's not he takes away the sins of the Christian. It's he takes away the sins of the world. Um, John 3, 16 and 17, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then you see some conditionalism to it that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But his heart is not that he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So we'll take a, a word like might. It's a, you know, it's sort of subjunctive as if, well, maybe they will, maybe they won't, they might be. No, mm -hmm. what, what he's talking about is, um, his provision is for all people now. Uh, and that is, con that is, we experience that contingent on belief, but then in the end, he foresees all believing. So for example, um, when Christ, when Christ says, if, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. He says that the father has given everything into his hands and what he's given into his hands, he will by no means cast out. This is the will of the father that of the father who sent me. And um, so you've got these kind of world, the world language. And then the other language is, is the all language. I already mm -hmm. used uh, when I lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. Um, but there's some particularly strong ones in Paul's writings he says in Romans 5, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Of who? All men. Um, Romans 11, he's shut up all to unbelief so that he might have mercy on all. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is a great one. Uh, For since death came through a man, 
the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And then it's, it's again, not only the idea that, that Christ is doing this for everyone, but mm-hmm. also the way the new and the New Testament foresees all people receiving, receiving it, that every knee will bow in heavens and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess. Um, and it's the confession of faith from Romans 10, 9. Yeah, that, that exomologestai, that Greek word there, is a, is a glad, uh, joyous he, confession. Absolutely. It's the baptismal confession that people would make at the rebirth. And uh, someone pointed out one that's not in my list the other day. They just say this, that uh, no one can say Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. And so these all people, all, all people who are confessing Jesus is Lord, they can only confess that from their hearts to the glory of God the Father by the Spirit. Um, so we've got this provision for all. We've got the reception by all, but you, again, the desire, the desire of God that all, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 4, all, he desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And then <laughs> um, 1 Timothy 4, 10 is especially strong also. We labor and strive for this because we've put our hope in the living God who is the savior of everyone especially of those who believe. No, that's interesting, hey? He's a savior. Yeah. He is the savior of everyone, especially of those who believe. What, what does he mean? That he's not actually the savior of those who don't? I don't think so. I think it's more like this. He is the savior of everyone. Uh, those who believe this have already entered into that experience. And, and so i just i i see christ really he is the heir of all things you know it's not it's not that christ is the heir of all things except those who didn't believe in him um he is the heir of all things and so in in first corinthians 15 you get this very strong telescope that looks into the future even beyond what you see at the end of the book of revelation to a time when christ is victorious there are no more enemies he hands the kingdom over to his father and then Gregory of Nyssa, Origen, these guys, it was their favorite verse, I think, that God will be all in all. Will he or won't he? Does all mean all or does all mean just, you know, our narrow band of believing Christians? And so Mm -hmm. ultimately, ultimately, I see redemption, but I think also ultimately indicates there is a means by which this happens. It's not just automatic. It is by our preaching, by our prayers by our hope, by and there's our real, and there's real, there's real response that we need to make. It, it, it's that that we are really have real skin in the game. Abs- I believe so. Yeah, that we participate. This is hard on people in the West, but in Eastern churches, they have no trouble saying we participate in our salvation. Uh, we participate in it by surrendering to the loving care of the Redeemer. So there is no salvation without participation. Um, right, but let's be careful what we mean by salvation, right? So often a evangelical people of evangelical past think of saved as will you go to heaven or not? Think more uh-huh. in terms of a salvation as being our experience of eternal life. So we that's a journey 
of transformation. We are being changed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. That's salvation. So there's this past sense that I was saved at the cross. There's a future sense that I will be saved through the resurrection of my body into immortality. And then there's the present tense journey that includes landmarks like going forward at an altar call. But really, mm-hmm. it's a day, it's day-to-day experience of life in Christ. Um, so, so, so salvation is a, a much broader and thicker term than, well, did you say the right prayer to go to heaven one day? Oh, no, it's like mm-hmm. much bigger than that. It's not just it getting your sins canceled. It's more, it more has to do with a real relationship, a real coming into the true experience of the full eternal life of God. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's a trans, you know, the, it's a transforming experience where I'm being changed. And I think that's one of the things that's one of the strong points of the Eastern Orthodox Church is that it has really defined salvation as that way as union with God rather than just the idea of oh, my sins got forgiven so that means I get to go to heaven. But really salvation is is a full fully coming into union in the full in, into the full life of God. Yeah. And that it's a real relationship. So, you know, we had this, um, we had these two ditches we would try to stay between. In the one ditch, we might say, uh, uh, we we had, you know, salvation by works, as if it's you doing this. It's like, mm-hmm. And then on the other ditch, it was like, no, it's grace alone. You do nothing. Well, neither is describing a relationship. A real relationship is a re- is reciprocal. And we would say, we love him because he first loved us. So we believe grace initiated the relationship. And then our response matters towards experiencing the blessings of that relationship. Um, it's sort of like we say our I do in response to God's I do uh, as, as a spousal covenant. Um, God may have married us. He may have signed the, the the marriage papers. But if I'm not participating in the marriage, then I won't experience the blessings of the marriage. I've turned away from what it is to relate to him, even if he doesn't turn away from me. So what I'm trying to do, and I I see this beautifully in 12-step recovery, uh, people in daily surrender to the loving care of a God who is redeeming them and changing them and and, and, uh, bringing about a flourishing in their lives that we know is the abundant life. Well, you have made a journey really from an evangelical raising to where salvation really was defined in the kind of deliverance from eternal torment. And now you find yourself uh, in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And that's, you know, that's, that must have been quite a journey. Can you just say a little bit about that? And, and also uh, about how in the Eastern Orthodox Church, there is a a fidelity to scripture, but there's also a taking very seriously the tradition of the church, especially the first uh, seven councils. And there is some question about whether or not the final union of all people with God was condemned at the fifth general council. And so could you just kind of walk through some of that with us? Well, let's start with my journey then. Um, so my journey began as a, a Bible believing, uh, you know, gospel sharing Baptist. Mm-hmm. Um, who then then also enjoyed a, a decade immersed in the Jesus-centered Sermon on the Mount-driven Mennonite world. 
and I, I bear the best gifts of both of those traditions. Um, it was during that time I also became more aware of the Holy Spirit and the Holy and the Spirit's work in our lives, and with um, uh, with an openness to charismatic and contemplative. Uh, context where, you know, hearing God's voice is part of the deal and responding is and, and ministering in, in the power of the spirit. So I, I, I had a good experience of the renewal movement in the sense that it, what it birthed in us was a heart for the poor and for, for justice and for people with disabilities and for the marginalized and refugees. So it was a very, it, it was um, sort of a charismatic experience with a a, a Christian public justice outworking. And that, mm-hmm. that was part of my journey. So in the midst of all of that journey, I began to see God as, uh, as God of peace, a God who redeems, a God who saves, and began to really um, question this idea that God is retributive, that he's a punisher, that he's that, that there's any death or darkness in him at all. And, and that our salvation is not based in redemptive violence. It's based in radical self-giving love. And so, so during that, my time with the Mennonites and then at Fresh Wind Church, where we were doing the renewal stuff with the marginalized and especially working with people in inner healing ministries, we just began to see God is simply not retributive. And, he, he can freely forgive uh, and that that forgiveness is revealed mm-hmm. on the cross, not as God punishing Jesus so he doesn't have to punish you, but as us punishing Jesus and him responding with forgiveness. So once you start questioning retribution, um, then you have to double check. What's your view of the cross? What's your view of of eschatology? What's your view of how to read the Old Testament? All of these things need to be reframed around the love of God revealed in Jesus. That's when I ran into the Orthodox world where there's a deep theology of the church and salvation, not through a courtroom lens, but through a hospital lens, that God is not the punishing judge. He's a great physician that sin is not just law-breaking, it's much worse. It's a fatal disease and that Christ has come to heal us of that disease, not just to forgive us for our sins, but to set us free from them. And that's a journey. And so um, for the last, I guess, 18 years, I've been mentored by Archbishop Lazar. He's a monk in the Orthodox Church. Uh, For the last 11 years, I actually also added the uh, I, I moved beyond theology into the worship practice, which is where which is where you receive the therapy of the kingdom of God. It's through worship. It's through the prayers of the people. It's through a consistent message that God is merciful. And that when we ask for mercy, we're not turning on the mercy tap. We are coming under under an ever flowing waterfall and Mm -hmm. orienting ourselves daily to, to receive the mercy with open hands and open mouths, you know, and, and there's a, an ascetic to it too. It's or aesthetic, ascetic and aesthetic, ascetic Mm -hmm. being a letting go, uh, but an aesthetic of the beauty of this, that beauty is part of what's how, how God ministers to us. So, so the worship life in the Orthodox church has been therapeutic to my broken nervous system and, um, and, and I am aware that 
we're a big church. There's probably 350 million people who would identify as Eastern Orthodox, maybe 250 million really practicing. I, I don't know, but in with that many people, you're going to get a range of views. Mm-hmm. And so within that range of views, you're going to get people who still have sort of imported their evangelical retribution into the Orthodox church or... Um, it's sort of like evangelicals with icons, but they didn't get free of the old retribution separation theology. Yeah. But there's those who really understand that the fathers were all about union with Christ and that this union saves. So um, within so within that range, you'll, you'll probably get some hellfire church fathers right. and you're going to get some universalist church fathers and everything in between. Um in the midst of that, to your second question, uh, I don't want to overplay the councils either. You know, primarily, primarily our our doctrine is the Nicene Creed, and a lot of the councils were about just defining some of the definitions around the creed and dealing with some of the contemporary errors that people were making around the nature of Christ. Most of them are about that. Um, uh, but it's really in the hymns of the church and the prayers of the church that you, you're you immersed week after week after week in the theology uh-huh. of the church, which is very generous and very global and very much about that. Even when we have communion, this we're having this communion for the life of the world. We're, we're acting, when I go up for communion and I receive the Eucharist, I do it for the life of the world. In, in that sense, I am a, the priesthood of all believers is about a priesthood to the world who vicariously receives eternal life on behalf of all. You know, it's very fascinating that way. And, and that in our Paschal homily of St. John Chrysostom, that it talks about, the, you know, the conquest of death. And that he has invaded the grave and not one dead remains there. So we've got these very strong kind of universalist statements right within the regular worship life of the church. Mm-hmm. Well, then, you know, your average person may not look into the details of what was going on in these seven councils, but that is part, part of our tradition. It's just not the loudest part. The question is, um, at the... The, or the objection is raised that perhaps the Fifth Ecumenical Council condemned the universalism of origin, and um, that's just uh, that's that was a traditional view, but that that's been debunked largely now by David Bentley Hart, John Bear, and others who recognize that the Fifth Council, in fact, did not even talk about that. And what did happen was that prior to the council, there was a a local synod that attacked a specific version of Origenism that was not even faithful to Origen. So you had a few teachers 300 years after Origen teaching a perverted version of something Mm -hmm. he said that... and uh, and that this what this was indeed condemned at, at this synod, but even that didn't get into the council notes. You know, it was not part of it. So so I want to just say there's layers of error to to thinking this was about rejecting apocatastasis, which is the restoration of all things. It was rejecting a particular perverted version of it 
that was misrepresenting origin 300 years after the point and it which has to do with um uh, a belief that origin a mistaken belief that origin was was talking about when a restoration means going back home like in the prodigal son story right as if that meant as if that implied that we we were going to be um uh, that we had been pre-existent souls so these pre-existent souls get kicked out of heaven come to earth now as a baby born in people and that being a material human being is part of the judgment and now you know and and that when we return we're going to go back to being disembodied souls back to the source where we had been well origin never taught that that's ridiculous and it is a heresy good condemn that <laughs> it's uh -huh. just don't don't mistake that for condemning um ultimate redemption that origin did teach that gregory of nisa did teach and that at the fifth council gregory of nisa was certainly not condemned he was called the flower of orthodoxy yeah and the seventh so, general council in the seventh general council gregory of nisa is deemed the father of the fathers is that correct uh, that could be the seventh. That could even be earlier. Um, the seventh was more focused on the issue of icons and people destroying icons because they thought they were idols. And the, that council just said, no, icons are icons are an affirmation of that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God and an affirmation of the resurrection of the dead. You know, that was the main focus at the seventh council. And, but so at they some, may at have some point he was. He was declared. Gregory of Musa was... Absolutely. Yeah. He, he's a saint. He's the final editor of the Nicene Creed. He's the flower of orthodoxy, the father of fathers, and he's also called there the defender of orthodoxy. That may have been at the seventh, may have been at the fifth, but it was definitely a church council that declared that. Uh, and it was, and, it, and so if the problem was patristic universalism, they would never have done that. So patristic... So patristic universalism is is an interesting phrase. Uh, so yeah. patristics is patristics refers early to the, the Greek word pater pater in a yeah. church in an early church father. Then I mean, for those who are not maybe familiar, or mother with, by the way, or mother, yeah, Macrina, Macrina um, the younger, which was Basil the Great and Gregory of Nyssa's older sister and primary teacher. And so out of her, we get this book through Gregory called On the Soul and the Resurrection. And people can order it now, buy a copy. That's where you get a very clear teaching on ultimate redemption. So what I called patristic, patristic um, uh, universalism is identical to what I've also defined earlier as ultimate redemption. It's the same thing. It's just saying that ultimate redemption does have its roots in some of the church fathers and mothers. Not all of them agreed with it, but right. certainly it was allowed. It was in-house and it was part with well within the bounds of Christian dogma and the Nicene Creed. So what if what if I was to just make the following general statement? What would you say? That in that in the early centuries of the church, there were church fathers and uh, church mothers, perhaps if we want to use that phrase too, uh, and, and uh, a good number of just regular practitioners of following Jesus who were of the opinion that there would be a final union of all of all uh, to God in in the ultimate in the ultimate end that judgment was 
restorative and not retributive. They didn't reject the idea of of hell, but they just thought that the the the, the fire of God or the punishments of God were ultimately retributive. But then has as church history moved forward, restorative, restorative, yeah, it was restorative, what you meant. Yeah, yeah, not retributive. But then, as we moved, uh, as as at least uh, Western civilization, as the church then uh, came into the Roman imperial uh, uh, influence and its theology started developing, that it really went more the direction of Augustine, and he his ideas had to do with a final judgment of eternal torment or eternal life, and that that was the primary theology that got carried forward in the in the Western Church, and especially after this Fifth Council, when um, the name of Origen, as, as you say, was sort of unfairly um, uh, uh, brought down or, or anathematized, um, that 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 just sort of put a cloud in the Western Church over the whole even hope that all would all would be saved. But meanwhile, in the Eastern Church. The Eastern Church still was able to remember those early church fathers, and so they, they never lost sight of that hope. Is just is that summary fair, or how would you add I think to that? That's or very, yeah, I, th- I think that's very fair. I don't think I'd need to add or correct, but you know, I may just um, affirm it with a few more words, like, um, yeah, that Augustine was such a towering influence in the in the West that his view became the dominant one, which is to say eternal conscious torment. That became the dominant view in the West and out of the West, out of Western Roman Catholicism, August specifically Augustinian Catholicism, you get the reformers. They were all Augustinians even after they were reformers. And so they they made this kind of um, infernalism, we will call it. Uh, they made it not only dominant, but eventually imposed it as the only Orthodox, Western Orthodox right. um, view. And then this gets popularized through the evangelical revivalists like um, like Jonathan Edwards and... and um, Apparently Billy Graham, but although in his later decades, he definitely comes out saying that all those who turn towards the light uh, will be saved, even if they don't know that that light is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So, you, um, so, but, but the bottom line is that up and that in the West from Augustine forward, infernalism actually wins the day and and that this now is embedded in most evangelical faith statements as something you must believe. And I would just say that's unraveling now very quickly as we begin to have more interaction with Eastern Christianity and the beauty yeah. of other fathers like St. Isaac of Syria. The, now that people are doing their homework on this and saying, well, wait a minute, if the early church fathers, if some of the greats, uh, believed in ultimate redemption, then I'm allowed to. I'm at least right. allowed to. I'm not a heretic yeah. if I do, or else they were. And these are the great defenders of the faith. So, you know, if people want to believe 
in a more hopeful kind of inclusive outcome, um, they're certainly warrant from the early church to do so. If what they you don't say? want to, my question is, why wouldn't you want to? <laughs> I think there's some some an interesting parallel in that during the time of the Protestant Reformation, there was this new thinking that coincided with new technology in the in the printing press, and so now here we are, um, you know, and we're we're some 500 years later. It seems that big things kind of happen every 500 years. Um, so here we are, and now we've got a new technology with the internet that's allowing people to communicate, uh, to share ideas, to podcast, to do all of these different things. And so there's so much more availability of this kind of information to the general public now. I mean, it does seem to me that this, that this time period that we are in is every bit as transformational as the Protestant Reformation was. I think so. And I think the foundation of that is is from heaven. You know, I believe that what began this ball rolling, it was a fresh revelation of the father heart of God. And it, I mean, it has flooded the world, a, a restoration of the understanding that God is the good father revealed in Jesus Christ, that the gospel is the prodigal son story in a nutshell. And what I've observed that is especially, let's say, starting in the 70s and, and then the 80s, um, that this father heart or father's love or father's house teaching was ha, has begun flooding the globe through uh, in the West through groups like YWAM through even though they had like they had some weird kind of um, clinging and why is youth is youth with youth with youth, a mission youth with a mission yeah so they might have some ideas about god as being retributive and talk about hell and stuff but 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 they were also start teaching the father heart of god the vineyard church started producing an an enormous amount of of worship music that that spread beyond their movement focusing on the father interesting charismatic group but their emphasis wasn't on the spirit as much as on the father and the father's love and the father's house and the father's heart. My friend, Brian Dirksen was a big part of that. He's written many songs on this and you start permeating the church with worship that gets into your heart and brings tears to your eyes. It is very different than 50 years ago. It's not the same as what the revivalists were doing. And so, and then, and then, you know, folks from the East hear this and they're like, well, yeah, we, we were saying that all along. <laughs> and, yeah. and in fact, you guys who are composing this stuff now, you're right. You're not, you're not out on a limb. You've gone back to the roots of the tree way to go, you know? So I'm excited about, about how the father's heart teaching and father's heart revelation then begins to tumble all the dominoes of retribution. Well, in the in the time that we we've had left, we have left. I, I would like for you to. And there's a lot of interest in this, and and you have the personal experience of finding your way into it. So maybe who were some of the voices that you discovered that that sort of that that were helpful for you? Maybe who were some of the who were some of the the voices of the early church that you would recommend? Who were some scholars that that have that have helped you? Um, to sort of round out your views of things. 
Yeah. So in the early church, if I could recommend some very, very good writings, these are these people are geniuses. Their stuff is still in print because it's both beautiful, succinct, and clear. Um, mm-hmm. So I would say get um, the book by Athanasius called On the Incarnation. I would get it's it's a little tougher read, but important if you believe in ultimate redemption to get Gregory of Nyssa, N-Y-S-S-A, On the Soul and the Resurrection. And then anything you can get your hands on from Isaac the Syrian. Um, I also got some help from St. John Cassian, who a remarkable, a remarkable church father who influenced Celtic Christianity, even though he never got to the UK and he influenced the Benedictines in the Catholic tradition, but he, and he would talk about wrath as a metaphor and that if you literalize it, you're committing a blasphemy. So he was a big deal later. Um, uh, a little bit later, it's worth, it's worth recognizing the, the ultimate redemption that you discover in St. Ju- St. Uh, not, she's not a St. Julian of Norwich, N O R W I C H. Um, revelations of divine love julian of norwich and then in more modern times what is that before we go before we go to more yeah. modern times maximus the confessor i think is an important voice would he you is, say something he, about him he's, he's very important um he's a bit tougher to read at times um and but but he's the one who really sees that christ had a human will and that christ brought that human will into submission to the divine will even within his own person and toward the father at Gethsemane and that in healing the human will through submission to the divine will, that's how we get a freed will. He's the guy behind the freed will response at the final mm-hmm. judgment. I'm not sure which book to send people to first on him though, but have a, you know, have a look around at him. He'd, He's done a lot of good work. And as far as Origen um, is concerned, uh, the translations that we got of Origen into English were not the were not the best. We're not the best. And John Baer has recently done uh, a fresh uh, translation of Origen on first principles. Could you say something about that? Yeah. So B E H R. That's the translator. And and first principles um, by Origen had an enormous influence on all of the early church fathers. It was kind of, it was the first systematic theology. Yeah. And I mean, you get a bit of that in Irenaeus as well, but, but um, if you get hold of John Bear's new translation, the introduction alone is worth the price of the book because yeah, the introduction is fantastic. It just clears up so many of the misunderstandings we had, and it does set you up for a foundation. That's what first principles are. Here's the foundation of our faith, and it's rooted in the prologue of the Gospel of John, and it's it's genius. So yeah, please uh, consider getting that. Just don't expect it to be like reading an Archie comic. You know, it's not toilet reading, but it's also not inaccessible. You just have to decide: Do I want to be a thoughtful theologian or not? If you do, you can read Origins First Principles in John Bear's writing. If you don't, then don't go on social media and tell me about who God is. You know, this, our theology of God needs to be thoughtful because we've seen the horrendous, um, tragically bad fruit of sloppy theologies of God. It does trickle down and you end up with stuff like Trumpism. 
you know? So this is a time to be more thoughtful in our considerations and origin will help you. Now, as far as then now modern voices, modern scholars who have kind of um, helped us remember the best of the past and who've done a good job with sort of modern ways of thinking about our faith, who are the, who are some of the ones that, uh, that you have um, benefited from? Yeah, in terms of theology, that's really easy to understand, but way, way healthier. I would start with Callistus Ware, the Orthodox way. And he's not just talking about Eastern Orthodox. He's talking about how the early church understood God and Jesus Christ and salvation. And he's, he's just, he's a real sage. He's epic. And, um, I would, I would get, um, the mystery of Christ by father John bear very short little book. Uh, he's done another one called becoming human. These are just fantastic little works that will get us back on the right track. Um, you know, I, it's not so much that Brian Zond was a influence on me so much as we are collaborators and I would get everything he's written. Um, his book sinners in the hands of a loving God is instant classic and it'll help you even with stuff like the book of revelation as well. And, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, you know, in terms of new Testament scholars, uh, this might surprise people, but there was a trilogy about Jesus by Benedict the 16th, the last Pope. It's one of the best things written about Jesus Christ, the gospels and the life of Christ in, in the last century. Um, there's just so many good books. I'm, I'll, I, um, I will say that the book that saved my life, the one that's had the most influence on me next to the four gospels is Simone Weil. W-E-I-L. And there were two books in, that I've translated into one book called Awaiting God. So it's translated by me with the intro by me, but and um, uh, but it's her book. And it is really powerful on dealing with the love of God and human affliction. And that's why I say it saved my life. Uh, when I could no longer see through to how, how can there be so much needless suffering, non-redemptive tragedy in the world, and still say God is good. She brought me back to the cross. She sent me into the abyss first, into the darkness of the Mm -hmm. contradiction. But in that darkness, uh, she says, now look up and you can see the goodness of God and the affliction of man as a real contradiction and just be astonished by it. But then see how they intersect in the life of Jesus on that cross and from from that intersection, from his wounds flow love into the world. And from your wounds, love can flow into the world. So I, if um, there's a version called Waiting for God, don't get that one. It's an old translation and mine's called Awaiting God. A-W-A-I-T-I. God. And actually I was just listening to the audio book. We got a fantastic female uh, narrator to do it. And that that's also a really excellent version because Simone, Simone Vey is how you say it. Okay. W-E-I-L, Awaiting God. Yeah. Most important book I've ever read probably in terms of my personal transformation. Now you've, and, you've, you've written yourself. Uh, 
What tell us uh, for people that want to know more about your thoughts and your work? What have you written, and sort of what what have each of them try to get at? Well, I, you know, I've done about twenty books, so I, I would say if you want an inroad into my writing, um, I did a book on called "Can You Hear Me?" Tuning into the God Who Speaks that tries to look at the whole question of hearing God's voice and how important that is, but also how important it is to discern it rightly and from the competing voices outside and inside of us. And that that discernment process uh, helps us to hear God and that, that, that that's when we really develop a living connection with God so that Jesus isn't just an idea or a doctrine, but a person who communicates. Um, and then I've written this trilogy just finishing up the third one, a more Christ-like God, a more Christ-like way, and now a more Christ-like word. And it's all about, um, it's it, in a sense, it, it it's just saying God is like Jesus. He's exactly like Jesus because God, Jesus is God, the son who is the image of the invisible God. And what this means for how we understand God, how we understand the Christian way of living that Jesus pre- uh, prescribed as a program for life and recovery and now a more Christ-like word that Jesus Christ is the word of God. He mm-hmm. is what God has to say about himself. And he teaches us how to read the scriptures on the Emmaus road. So I call it the Emmaus way of reading scripture. And that is that all scripture prefigures Jesus, his passion, his resurrection. Now, as far as uh, ultimate, uh, the, the scholarly work around Ultimate destinies and yeah, yeah, ultimate redemption. Your book, "Her Gates Will Never Be Shut," is that that's the that's the work that I first came to know you by. Yeah, that, and some are saying that's one of the more definitive works because I wasn't heavy-handed with my opinions. I was trying to do data collection and saying, "Here's what the Bible says. Here's what the fathers say. Look at the range of visions here. Let's approach this humbly because you can't harmonize it easily." So instead of so having so much heat around it, like it's this great debate on stuff we know nothing about, <laughs> it's more like yeah. a careful examination of, um, of of what the scriptures and the early church thought about this. And But it does climax, I will say this, um, it, does, it does climax in a look at the last chapters of Revelation where we had assumed the end, our telos, was either heaven or hell from Revelation 20, but there's right. two more chapters, and in those two chapters, we see the gates of the city are, are open. The spirit of the bride and the bride are saying, "Come." The nations are bringing the glory of the the kings are bringing the glory of the nations into the city. They're having the tree of life, which is the healing of the nation. So this is the coming age of of well, it's this age as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it it shows us that you know our idea of the lake of fire isn't the last chapter. There's another chapter after that, two more chapters, in fact, and both literally revelation 21 and 22, but Mm. also figuratively in the sense of the age to come and the end of the ages when God is all in all. Well, Brad, thank you uh, so much for your scholarship. And I think that you were that this term that you've brought forward, ultimate redemption, I think that's a lot that I think that's a really good way to uh, to think about it. And I want to thank you for the thoughtfulness that you've put into uh, to having that um, to having that term for us. Do you have do you have any any final thoughts to, to share before we sign off? 
yeah, just to reiterate that this is ultimately not about about uh, getting our doctrine right. It's about experiencing the life of Christ, a real connection with a living person who has forever united himself to you. And and um, apart from that, the rest of this is is probably worthless. If First Corinthians thirteen means anything, right? If I have all mis- know all mysteries and all knowledge, but I don't have the love of God in me and toward me and through me to others, then it's, then it's just, um, ashes. (laughs) So I would call people to really, um, to consider where have you experienced living connection with Christ? Pursue that, remember it, relive it. So into it today. And, uh, That's the most important thing I can tell you because it is out of that that I think my theology has flowed. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your scholarship and your life with us. We all appreciate it. Thank you, David. Okay, look forward to the next time we talk. You bet. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, Or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.